Amen. All right, so today we're going to pick up at the end of chapter 14, uh, Revelation, if you want to turn that way. Um, but to get us started, um, try and have a little bit of a, a table talk here, and, and so you may need to combine if you want to talk with, with others. Um, but we're looking right at this, the images of the beast of Babylon, what we're up against. And, you know, we're, we're, we're seeing how terrible that is, but we also saw, especially at the beginning of chapter 14, how when God works to defeat evil, evil's not going to come back, right? That, that this destroyed forever. And especially we're going to continue to see that this shouldn't be in doubt for us, even though sometimes it feels that way. But we're going to get more images of, of judgment here in these uh, couple of chapters we're looking at today. And so we want to think about how that how that works and why God is is maybe doing these things and why this is important to God. So uh, talk about this with your table, you know, as we're trying to think about in our lives, how do you react when someone hurts a loved one of yours, you know, and hurt however you understand it? Uh, and then are some reactions you might have in that situation more godly than others, right? What's your first impulse? Is that the best way to handle that? Um, what are some ways that we react when someone hurts someone that we love? So talk about that with your table, and then we'll we'll share together in just a little bit. All right, just another minute, and then we'll let a couple people share what are some of the things, some reactions you might have. Uh, yeah, well, I'll, I'll wrap it up in just a second. I was giving you one more, giving you one more minute, so yeah, you're fine. No, no, no. <laughs> you're all good. All right, well, let's bring it back together. Uh, what were some of the things that you said, you heard somebody say that was interesting? What are some ways we react when somebody hurts somebody we love and uh, are some better than others, some more godly? So what did, you, what did we come up with? Anyone? I heard a lot of <laughs> <laughs> no, you don't get to call on other people. Okay, anger, right? Just, yeah. And especially, I mean, you know, I just said hurt in general, right? That can mean a lot of different things. Uh, it's just emotionally, they said something unkind, uh, or they 
physically hurt them, yeah, there might be some light hot rage in some of those cases. Okay, yeah, you're gonna come to come to their aid, be on their side. Um, okay, even with your kids, right? You wanna be, you're on their side, you wanna find out, okay, what actually happened, right? There was a altercation at the playground or something, but you know, somebody is, is picking on them, you know, you're gonna do something, right? But what else? Or, you know, the second part of that question, right? There's some reactions more godly than others. Uh, what is the appropriate response? Do we always respond appropriately or not? I think just forgiveness and to forget and let go. You know, I have family members that were raised in the church that were cousins, and then that was me. <laughs> and not that I did anything to them that I thought anyway. Mm. Um, and then we became adults, and we never were really close. We never really connected, so to speak. Mm -hmm. But um, I, I was with my mom a lot, you know, mm -hmm. so I was close to my aunt. And so, long story, I'm sorry. So, anyway, um, when my nephew passed away, with my cousin, he called me and asked me if it was the same person. And I said, yeah, I haven't heard from you in ages. And so we were talking and he came to the funeral and I noticed he'd been going to most of my family's funerals, which was nice, you know, I like that. And then um after a while he left automatically after my nephew's funeral and and I called him. I said, Well, I thought you were gonna stick around. Well come to find out he was harboring some ill feelings because he felt like when his mother had cancer, I didn't visit with her enough. Mm. I didn't go see her. And I thought, really? Mm. I was 19. <laughs> yeah, so sometimes there's, right, we're thinking something about the immediate response. Sometimes it's a lingering resentment. Yeah. And like you said, you want there, hopefully there can be forgiveness. That's usually not the first place we go. And sometimes, right, if somebody's, you know, hurting my kid, I'm not gonna like, hey, let's, let's find forgiveness here. First, you gotta stop that you know the abuse from happening or the the injustice of it right um so yeah but that long term especially um we don't want anger to be the only thing right even if that may be how we how we start yeah i mean anger is a natural response not, so it's more no. about what do you do with it yeah yeah, I think just ignoring it maybe isn't the healthiest thing for us. So it's where's that anger pointing me, right? And a lot of times, this is what we're going to talk about, is it, if something is unjust, then anger is probably the right response. But what do you do with that anger, right? Holding on to it like this, holding a grudge for years, probably not uh, the godly thing, right? Hopefully that's not what God is doing. So we'll, we'll look at this more as we get into it, and we'll kind of break in the middle and have a, a discussion about this too. But yeah. What's our first response? But you know, when it's someone you love, you're not probably going to do absolutely nothing. You say, "Oh, that's no big deal, right?" If you really love them, you're going to care when when hurt has occurred. But are we doing it in a godly way? All right. Well, let's pick up in uh, verse 14 of chapter 14. We're going to get some images of of harvest here. Then I looked, and there was a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like the Son of Man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to the one who sat on the cloud, Use your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, because the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So the one who sat on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, 
and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Another angel came from the altar. The angel has authority over fire, and he called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, Use your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle over the earth and gathered the vintage of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for a distance of about 200 miles. Okay, so powerful imagery here, right? But it, uh, it's all tied to this idea of the harvest. And that's harvest imagery comes up a lot in scripture. Jesus will use it in his parables uh, when he talks about his return or when others talk about Jesus coming back. Uh, why can harvest be a, a helpful imagery? Right? The idea of uh, something growing and then you go and you reap what you've sown and bring that in. Why is, what are some ways that can be a helpful metaphor or image? Okay, yeah, you gotta you gotta get the weeds out of there, right? Jesus talks about that sometimes. Or you let it grow and then at the end you sort it out. He's talked about it both ways. So what weeds do I have growing in me that maybe I need to let the spirit pluck out? What else? Where are there what are other examples of harvest imagery? Why is that helpful? Okay, right. Yeah, it's, it's, it's about food. And that's probably why Jesus talks so often. This is their experience. That's, that's what you got to do. Um, you know, but it's used in lots of different ways, right? Evangelism, you know, we could sing bringing in the sheaves if you want, uh, or not. Um, or when he comes, right? It's, that's the time of, of the harvest. So in the meantime, what we're growing, and it's encouraging us to be fruitful. And at the end is when we're going to see how much fruit did you really grow? Uh, and what makes things grow, right? Um, the good soil versus the bad soil, or um, if it has fertilizer, right? Some of our negative experiences can help us grow if, if we can let them even. And so this is another way that here, John is, is using these symbols to describe the final judgment, right? There's many scenes of the, the final judgment through Revelation. It doesn't just happen at the end. It's kind of looking at it from different ways, from different angles with different imagery. Um, and so, again, that just reminds us this is not, you know, when you see it talking about so much blood for 200 miles, again, we're going to think about what is this symbolizing, not just that is literally what we expect. That's how symbols work here. So we get this image, uh, Jesus is referred to as the son of man. You know, it's a term that Jesus himself used most often in the Gospels. It comes from Daniel chapter 7, uh, and it just means a fully human one, right? Son of man is just a Hebrew expression or Aramaic for uh, human being mortal. And so it's saying Jesus is fully human as opposed to the other character you see in Daniel 7, which is the, these beasts, right? Uh, Revelation is picking up that imagery as well. So unlike these subhuman beasts, Jesus is fully human. And that makes, that's what makes him the ideal judge because he shares in our humanity. He's lived a fully human life. So he's a better judge than someone who's beastly. Uh, so you're seeing that connection in Daniel and Revelation here. And so we have these two harvests, wheat and then grapes, and it seems like the wheat harvest is the faithful. Um, we saw that already in earlier in the chapter, verse 4, where it talks about the 144,000 as being the first fruits. That's also a harvest imagery, so those probably go together there. And they're not separated out, right? It says all of them are brought in, so all that are faithful are brought in. But then the other side, you get this grape harvest, right, the vintage of the earth. And so 
I don't know that what this means exactly, but it's a separate angel that goes and does that. Jesus goes and reaps the faithful. Another angel goes and gets the, uh, the wicked, I guess. And he comes from the altar, right? You see that? What verse is that? I didn't mark that down. Uh, oh, verse, verse 18. Yeah, it comes from the altar. He has the fire. The reason he comes from there is if you go back to chapter 6, the altar is where the martyrs were, were asking God, how long before you, you judge the people who did this to us, right? The people that were killed for their faith. And so I think that's a clear connection. That angel comes from that place. And so it's answering their question of, God, when are you going to do something about these people that, that killed us um, for being faithful? And so to me, the big picture with this is you reap what you sow, right? Paul says that directly in Galatians 6. And so, right, if we're being faithful, then, then that's, we become a faithful harvest. Uh, but look at what these trampled grapes produce, right? When, when they put the grapes in the wine press, blood comes out, not wine, right? They fill themselves with blood instead of something good, right? And again, the wine is blood metaphor we, we get. We talk about it with communion every week. Uh, but it's in a negative way, right? If you fill your life with blood or violence or, or negativity or, you know, things that, hurt others instead of fruit, then wrath is what you're, what you're expecting, right? And we saw that last time. It's if you're drinking uh, the cup of wrath from Babylon, then you're bringing uh, the wrath of God on you. Um, and so again, it's, it's you reap what you sow, right? Whatever you do is going to have consequences. I mean, this is what I talk about with my kids all the time, consequences. If you do this, this is what happens, right? It's, it just kind of comes naturally. And so I think that's the way that we want to continue to think about uh, this, this wrath here. Now, we'll talk about that more as we get to the end, but uh, that's the principle that I'm seeing here. You reap what you sow. Uh, again, it's a harvest imagery. And so that's what I think we're seeing. Um, but again, as we think deeper about wrath, God's wrath, God's justice, and God's love, right? we want to figure out how do those all fit together? Um, and I think when you see that God's anger or wrath, whatever term you use, is a response to injustice, right? If you're making things right when, when something has gone wrong and people are doing things that are wrong that hurt others, well, that may feel like wrath to the people that have been doing what's wrong, right? It's not that God is just trying to be, you know, brutal to them. It's, well, you know, again, just think about my kids. I tell them no. Sometimes that's like the worst thing in the world to them. And so I think it's a similar way that God is just trying to bring justice and make things right but if you're on the top, because, you know, like the Roman Empire, they've been oppressing people, bring them down and, and even in things out, that's going to feel like wrath to them or like torment to them. Uh, but that's not God's ultimate goal. It's more about making things right, making things even and uh, rewarding those who have done good. We've got a quote here from Miroslav Volf. He's a theologian originally from Croatia, a place that had in his lifetime experienced a lot of persecution, you know, during um, the Cold War. Um, and so he has a, you know, very, you know, uh, in his own life, he's experienced this, right? A lot of injustice for being faithful. And he says, any God who is not angry at evil in the world would be an accomplice in injustice, deception, and violence, right? So if God just said, well, you know, I guess it's, it's not right, but oh, well, right? That, that seems um, unjust, right? So God, uh, the anger comes from the love. That's, that's how I think we have to see these fit together, because we believe that God has, has wrath, right? We see that here, and yet God is love, as First John tells us. 
so the anger is secondary. Love is, is the core of God's character and nature, and that's essential. But sometimes, as we talked about in our own experience, right, anger comes from that because of the love. Uh, God's anger is directed at whatever hinders that love, uh, and that's the ultimate goal. And God's wrath is not infinite. We'll see that in verse 1 of chapter 15, right, where it talks about eventually the wrath of God is ended. God's love is, never ends, right, never fails. Uh, and so they fit together, but we need to keep them in the right priority. I think sometimes, how do you see anger and love fitting together in, in God? What are some different ways people talk about that? When they act on that, it feels like that they're being hostile, but really it's just coming from their heart. Mm -hmm. They don't feel that. Yeah, passion is a good word, right? That passion, I mean, that we think of that with love, but then, you know, passion makes you can make you do crazy things. Right. And that's also a term that's used for Jesus' death, right? The passion. Um, and it's sometimes connected to suffering as well. So, right, it, if you don't have passion for something, you don't really care. And, and if God didn't really care, that's not good news. Right? We want a God who cares when, when there's injustice, when, when um, people are being abused. That's, to me, that's, a, that's good. As long as we keep it in, in view of it, it flows from the love first. Um, but, you know, again, these images here, do they give comfort? Does this inspire fear? Uh, what's what's your response when you hear these sort of images of what happens to to you know the people that are thrown in the wine press or some of the other images we've seen? Give you comforting in some ways? Is that a little bit scary? Well, I wouldn't say comforting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Again, not not literal. Right? This is an image of right. How we understand because yeah if you do take all these things literally which i think some do a little too much it does seem really scary and it can be used as a fear tactic i think a helpful thing to remember is revelation is written to the church right they weren't sending this out to all the caesars and governors of rome to read and know here's what's going to happen to you it's more of a reminder for these church people who are experiencing real persecution that hey god is going to do something about this and again it you have to look at it from their perspective and it's hard a little harder for us to connect with as 21st century americans right we're not uh, in no way persecuted like they were right however you feel about what's what's going on um you know it we're not we're not losing our lives in the same way that that they were and so when you're in that uh persecuted minority it feels a little different and so it's, it's not going to hit us the same way and we want to make sure that we aren't from a place of power wanting these horrible things done to the people we don't like, but when we really are, Christians are in the minority and really being oppressed, this is a, a word of hope well, of God saying like something's going to happen. I, I feel like because we're Christians in, in this time frame with everything going on, we are being oppressed. Yeah, I mean, right, persecution is not either or, right, and so we always have to ask, why are we being, why do people not like us, right, is it because we're really fully showing Christ's love and, and challenging uh, places where it's not, or is it, we don't live up to it. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, I'm not saying that there's nothing uh, where Christians face uh, rejection and, and that sort of thing today. Of course there is, 
Um, but we're not in the same place they are. That, that was the point I was trying to make, right? We're not experiencing the deadly persecution that they were in, in America. There are plenty of places around the world where that is happening. So think of Christians in the Middle East or certain parts of, of Africa, right? They are facing this, and this might be uh, more meaningful to them than it would be to us. All right, let's get into chapter 15. Uh, so now we're going to have the seven bowls, uh, and this is our third cycle of sevens. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is ended. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mixed with fire, and those who had conquered the beast in its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Great and amazing are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Lord, who will not fear and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your judgments have been revealed. And after this, I looked, and the temple, the tent of witness in heaven, was opened. And out of the temple came the seven angels, the seven plagues, robed in pure bright linen with golden sashes across their chests. Then one of the four living creatures gave the seven angels seven golden bowls, full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from the power, his power, and no one could enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were ended. Uh, so, like I said, it's uh, we've seen this with the seven seals. Um, I just forgot the second set of sevens all of a sudden. <laughs> the, uh, so this is a cycle we're seeing over and over, right? And they tend to, really what they're doing is repeating and intensifying uh, what happened before rather than giving a chronological sequence because it's doing a lot of the same things. Um, and as we saw last time, there's ex Exodus imagery. We see that we're going to see that here as well. Um, and so we have the song of Moses and the lamb, which celebrates a new Exodus, right? You go to Exodus chapter 15, you have the song of Moses, which celebrates God defeated the Egyptians in the Red Sea. And so this is like that, but something new too, because it's also the song of the lamb. All right, this sea of glass, the sea is often an image of chaos, and especially in the Hebrew mindsets, for it to be still as glass is a sign that um, God has power over the sea, God has power over chaos, and it's ended. And these bowls that are coming, like I said, are they're called plagues, right? So it makes us think of the, the plagues from Exodus. And we have references to the tabernacle, the smoke of God's presence. Um, and so there's a lot of connections to Exodus. And yet, if you compare those two songs, uh, that song is very, there's a lot of gloating over the enemies or celebrating God as a warrior. And, and we don't see that here. It's more about just the God is, is just. Um, and this is why people will worship. Uh, and also, the interesting thing is this song is sung before judgment actually happens, right? It's, it's, the results are not in question. When God is going to act to defeat evil, we don't have to wonder, okay, how is this, this fight going to go? Now, it's, we can already sing that, hey, the judgment has come, and it's, and it's good, and it's revealed, and God has made things right, even before God does it. We also have this statement in that song, verse 4, that all nations will come and worship before you. It's one of these things that we see back and forth of the nations being punished or destroyed or tormented, and yet we also see all, all nations are going to worship. And so it's this ongoing tension of what is going to be the result when everything plays out. God has to address evil and, and do something about injustice, but what is God's ultimate goal? Right? It's, it seems like it's aimed towards healing, and we'll really see that in, in the end in chapter 22. Right, The tree of life is for the healing of, of all nations. 
Um, so how does this all fit together, right? There has to be an, a response to injustice, but worship is, it seems to be where God wants it to go. But uh, looking into chapter 16, does it always work out that way uh, with these bowls of judgment here? So uh, let's read, uh, I'm just going to read, this is a little longer, 1 through 11 of, of chapter 16. Um, well, actually, before we get to that, any questions about a uh, little chapter 15 here? Exodus imagery, God is going to bring justice. All right. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured his bowl on the earth, and a foul and painful sore came on those who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped its image. The second angel poured his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing in the sea died. A third angel poured his bowl into the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the waters say, You are just, O Holy One, who are and were, for you have judged these things. Because they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard their altar respond, Yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, your judgments are true and just. The fourth angel poured his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch them with fire. Uh, they were scorched by the fierce heat, but they cursed the name of God who had authority over these plagues, and they did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured his bowl on the throne of the beast, uh, the throne of the beast, and his kingdom was plunged in the darkness. People gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. So again, it's it's just Exodus over and over again. Sores, water to blood, darkness. And it says they're getting what they deserve. They reap what they sow. Uh, if you choose blood, then blood is what you get. Um, but what's the result? Verse 9 and verse 11, they did not repent. Right? We saw that also in, in chapter 9 at the end of uh, one of the previous cycles. All these, these things come, all these things happen, and people don't repent. Uh, it doesn't make people change. And so, as, as I've talked about before, if the wrath of God is really about reaping what you sow, um, you could argue that that's just the natural consequences, right? If you choose to do things that harm other people, um, you're right, and you don't show this kind of love that builds people up, well, don't be surprised if, you know, people don't want to hang around you or if, if people have a negative opinion of you. Um, you know, I know we're out of time, so we don't have time to really get into it, but, you know, how much is it requiring direct action from God to bring this wrath on people or bring this judgment? And how often are we just bringing judgment on ourselves through our own consequences? And, and we're saying that that's how God has operated, right? God is bringing justice in that way. And so we can read these. One reading is that this is just normal self-destruction uh, that, that humanity brings on itself. It doesn't lead to glory to God. So the, ongoing, the bigger question is, what does? Right? That's where we're going. When we look at Jesus, we look at the slaughtered lamb, that's what's going to lead to glory, lead to worship, and that's where the story's going. So it's been a lot of wrath the last couple of weeks, but that's where it's moving. Uh, so next, next week, actually next week, we won't have class, and then we'll look at a couple more images of judgment before we get to the end. So the end is nigh. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>